Hey, Tyler Shields here, pastor of Rock House Baptist Church. I want to personally thank you for tuning in to our podcast today. We pray that the message inspires you, encourages you, and challenges you to be the person that God desires you to be. Be sure to check us out online at rockhousebaptist.org where you can find out more about how to connect, grow, and go. And now, today's message. So this week, we are really dealing with the end of the book of Genesis, and it's some of my favorite passages of Scripture, of course. Again, I say that every week, I think. But we're going to be dealing with the life of somebody we talked about before, and that's Joseph. So when Easton was probably just a little bit older than Audrey, we were, I think, at my parents' house, maybe, is where we were at, and, and, and my family's kind of just all over the place, kind of just crazy in a good way. But we were trying to do something or make some plans. I can't remember. And suddenly Easton says, hey, who's in charge of this outfit? <laughs> and that's going to be the title for today's sermon. Because that's a pretty legitimate question, isn't it? We go through Scripture and we see and we read God's the one that's in charge. He's in control. He's the God on the mountain. He's the God in the valley, just like we sang about. But what about when things go kind of crazy? We begin to ask this same question. Who's in charge of this outfit? Who's in charge of this mess? Look at all this stuff that's going on. Who, who's in control of this? And we read it. We've read about it so far. It's been very apparent through the book of Genesis. We've seen God in control of creation. We've seen him sovereign in choosing a people for himself with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And now today we're going to read about God being in control of the life of another man named Joseph. But we, we fight this truth, don't we, if we're honest, that God actually is in control. Now we read it. For example, here's some verses that everybody knows. Proverbs 16, 9. A person's heart plans his ways, but... Who? The Lord determines his steps. Here's the mother of all sovereignty verses. It's one of our memory verses this week, Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. What about this one, Psalm 135, 6? The Lord does what? Whatever he wants to do in heaven, on earth, and in the seas, and all the depths. And so we read about God's sovereignty all throughout Scripture. We quote it. We sing songs about it. Most of the time, we believe it. But sometimes, we have a hard time accepting it, especially when things seem to be going not in our favor, when we're going through the valleys, we're going through difficult times. We learn how to address this question and, and the feelings that go along with it through the life of Joseph. Now, if you remember last year, we looked at Joseph's life in pretty good detail. But there was one section that we kind of just breezed over, and that's in Genesis 45. And I'll give you a little context this morning of what's happened. You, you probably remember Joseph and the coat of many colors from Sunday school. Well, Joseph 
was his father's favorite son. He was also at that time the youngest. He was the baby. And his father loved him more than all of his brothers. He gave him a coat of many colors. And his brothers were so jealous, not only of his father's love for him and the coat, but because Joseph had these dreams. Remember we talked about Joseph's dreams last year? He said, I dream, guys, that I'm going to rule over you someday, and you're going to bow down before me. That really just ticked them off. So they did what? They faked his death. They threw him into a pit. They sold him into slavery, ended up in Egypt, got to work in this guy named Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife tries to make the move on Joseph. He won't have it because he's a godly man. And so she uh, accuses him of trying to make the move. Long story short, he gets thrown into prison where he's forgotten about. And eventually... At just the right time, God pulled Joseph out of the prison, puts him in Pharaoh's palace where he became second in all of Egypt to Pharaoh only. And he comes up with this plan to save not only Egypt, but the world at that time from a seven-year famine that was going to take place. And now we're about two years into this famine, and lo and behold, who shows up in Egypt? All of Joseph's long-lost brothers. And guess who's the only person that can save their lives? Joseph. And so they come, and Joseph, they don't recognize him. It's been a long time since they throwed him into the pit. They threw a young boy into the pit, and now they've got a powerful ruler standing before them, a mighty man. And Joseph tests them. He, te he does some things to see if their hearts are pure, if, if they're really uh, you know, worth saving, to be honest with you. And now he's about to reveal himself to them, the one that they betrayed, the one that they might as well have left for dead by selling him into slavery. And 20 years plus of emotions come out of Joseph all at once. <laughs> Can you imagine? And in this moment, he's got to determine, am I going to save my brothers or am I just going to kill them? And that takes us to Genesis chapter 45. Let's read it together. It says, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. He didn't want his Egyptian counterparts to see him in this emotional mess. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. Didn't matter that he sent him away. Listen to this. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, hold on just a minute. Put yourself in those brothers' shoes for just a minute. This guy that's been messing with you since you came to Egypt, and you don't know what your brother, he's been pulling some tricks on you. Now he's got you alone in his house. And all of a sudden, he's crying so loud that everybody in the neighborhood hears him weeping and wailing. And you think this is just some nut. And here's what happens. He says, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Imagine that. So then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they'd done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph the one you sold into Egypt. But now get what he says. And now, do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. 
Because it was to save lives that God, not you, not anybody else, not the devil, God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been famine in the land. And for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So you look over the course of Jacob's life. Jacob's had a whole lot of time to think over things. You're in prison. I'm not going to ask who's been in prison, Mitch. If you've been in prison, you have a lot of time. to, Or if you've been in the army, you have a lot of time to think about stuff. And Joseph has had time over the past 20 years to think about what has happened to him, what his brothers have done to him, all the people that's hurt him and betrayed him. And he's very wise at probably about 39 years old to stand back and really grasp the big picture and see that God is actually the one that's in control of his life. Now, I'm sure it was tough, and there were probably days that he wanted to give up, and there's probably times that he really didn't understand why he was having to go through all the terrible things that he was having to go through. He probably wanted to kill his brothers at certain points in his life. I would, wouldn't you? But he says, God has preserved me. God has brought me through all of that junk to this point where I am today in life. And if God was the one in charge, and if God did this, then it's, it's okay with me. He, he says, even though you guys are the ones that sold me into Egypt, you're the ones that hurt me. I trust God more than I remember that hurt. Isn't that huge? I trust God more than the pain that you've caused me in my life. And so when we begin to accept God's sovereignty... There's a few things that happens. One, we find peace. I want to go through these quickly. We find peace. It's freeing to know <laughs> that the weight of the world is not on your shoulders. You don't have to be in control of every little thing that happens in this life. Assuming it's not a direct result of your poor choices. If you mess it up, well, some of that's on you. But the weight of the world is not your responsibility. I remember when I began as a young man to really, to really wrap my mind around this, and, and honestly it was not until I went to the desert myself and during the war in Iraq that I began to fully trust God's sovereignty and trust God's plan no matter what that plan looked like. I decided in life I'm going to trust Him if it means my death. I'm going to trust him because I know that God's plan is ultimately good. And he's a good father. And he's trustworthy. And for the first time in my life, I actually found peace knowing that I don't have to try and control the world. I don't have to try and control the people that are around me. But there's another peace that we find in God. And that's not only peace in his sovereignty. That's the peace when we bring Christ into our lives and we find salvation. See, before Christ, we carry around a whole lot of garbage, don't we? We got a lot of uh, burdens. We're, we're, we're burdened down with guilt and with maybe fear, maybe pain and regrets. But then Christ intervenes. And all of a sudden, we find a peace that the Bible says surpasses all understanding. But not only do we find peace with God, we find complete and total, absolute, I don't know how many ways we can describe it, forgiveness. That forgiveness adds to that peace. Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, 
Since we've been declared righteous by faith, since we've been forgiven, we have peace with God. Through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way you're going to have peace and forgiveness. Folks, I tell you, I don't know if you experience this, but to me there's nothing like getting up every morning and going to bed every night knowing that you're right with God. That there's nothing standing between you and the God of the universe. You don't have to worry about Him zapping you for being bad. You are right with God because of what Christ has done for you. That is peace, knowing that you're forgiven. But not only that, here's where I want to focus this morning. Not only can we have peace, not only can we have forgiveness, but because of all that, and we look at the life of Joseph, we can be forgiving. How are you going to forgive somebody like this if you ain't experienced forgiveness yourself? Imagine the pain that Joseph had endured all these years. Ripped from his father's home. Him and his dad were close. Being betrayed by all of his brothers. Being left in a pit, sold into slavery, thrown into a prison, an Egyptian prison. I wouldn't want to go there today. An Egyptian prison for crimes you didn't commit. One hurt right after the other. And then 20 plus years later, finally standing before the guys that started all this, your wrongdoers, your own brothers, who are now at your mercy, and you've got the power to, to either end their lives or preserve their lives. And, and, and folks, some of you all may be in this position today where you're still holding on to that pain. You're still holding on to that grudge, still holding on to that hurt that somebody has inflicted upon you sometime in the past. Maybe it was 20 plus years ago, just like Joseph. But it's doing nothing for you except eating you up inside. And for Joseph, all these emotions just come barreling out all at once. I can't even imagine the snot and the stuff that was flying when Joseph lost it. But he finally gained, regains composure and he pulls his brothers close. And look at verse 5 one more time. What's he say? He says, Now, brothers, not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Joseph realizes that over the course of his lifetime, there's something going on in the background, something that he can't see, but he knows there's, there's a hand at work in his life. And he realizes, yeah, his brothers, they may have thought they were at fault, and they were to a certain extent, but it wasn't the brothers that put Joseph in Egypt. It was God. And what the brothers, he would go on to say, meant for bad, guess what? God used it for good. And it took 20 years to reach this, reach this point of maturity, but he had peace with what he experienced. Why? Because he trusted God. He trusted God's plan. He trusted God's sovereignty. When he was down in the pit and he was down in the prison, and even when he was finally in the palace, surrounded by royalty, he knew that God was the one in charge of this outfit. Wasn't him, wasn't his brothers, it wasn't Pharaoh, it wasn't the devil trying to get him. God was the one that was in control. And now in this moment, he was able to forgive his wrongdoers. But not only forgive them, look at what he does. He not only lets it go, he actually does good for them. I've been asked many times, how do I know that I've forgiven somebody? And I think that's the key. Not just when you let it go, but when you begin to do good for them in return. They don't deserve it. Now, you may not be able to actually do good like Joseph did, but when you pray for them, 
What better good is there than that? It's what Jesus said. Pray for those that persecute you. We do that because why? Because that's the same kind of forgiveness that we've been offered by Jesus. We betrayed him. When I've told you over the past few weeks as we go through the Bible, I want to try and find Jesus in whatever passage of Scripture that we're looking at, right? Where is he here? In Genesis 45, there's actually two pictures of Jesus. The first one is what we just talked about. The forgiveness that Joseph extends to his brothers is the same forgiveness that Christ extends to us. Because look at what we've done. We've betrayed Christ, haven't we? We have sent him into the pit. Send him down into the prison of death. We send him to the cross, and we don't deserve his love and his forgiveness, but he freely gives it to us anyway. We deserve his wrath and his condemnation and anything bad he could throw our way. But notice what Joseph says in verse 7. I can hear Jesus saying the same thing. But God <laughs> sent me ahead of you to preserve you as a remnant on earth. And to save your lives, to save your souls by great deliverance. I love them words. God sent Joseph to Egypt to save these knucklehead brothers. Not only the, the, the world, but to save Jacob's family, to save the people that will become the nation of Israel. Out of the bloodline which would come a young girl in the town of Nazareth who would give birth to a baby boy named Jesus who came to save God's children, not from a famine, but from their sin. Thank God for sending Jesus ahead of us. But then there's a second picture here. And you may not see this one at first, but I think the second picture of Christ is not what He's done for us in the past. I think it's a future picture of what's going to take place. It's a picture of Him revealing Himself to His own brothers. Jacob's descendants today, where me and Caitlin and Tom and Ann just came from, guess what they're looking for? They're looking for the Messiah to come. They're still looking for Jesus. They pretty well missed him the first time. Not only, well, the Bible says that Jesus came unto his own, but his own knew him not. And not only did they not know him, but they rejected him. They rejected him to the point that they had the Romans crucify him and kill him. But you study it and you realize, wait a minute. Somebody had to betray him. Somebody had to disown him. Somebody had to uh, put all of this into motion. Why? So that we could be saved. But the story doesn't end there. Yeah, God had to allow Jesus to go into the pit and go into the grave, and he had to die and be raised again three days later. But what happens next? It's not over, is it? How many believe Jesus is coming back? Just making sure you're still awake. When we were over in the Holy Land, and, I, and we're going to begin tonight, by the way, sharing um, some pictures and, and just kind of talking through all the different sites that we saw. So if you're free at 6, I know there's a, a ball game at 6.30, but all the real Christians will be at church at 6, <laughs> and we'll DVR that. <laughs> just kidding. Okay, so <laughs> Brian says they're doing a devotion during the Super Bowl. All right. We'll, we'll give you that. 
But all the hardcore Christians will be here tonight to learn about the Holy Land. But as we begin to process everything that we've seen and walking in the footsteps of Jesus and all these other people that we read about in the Bible, some have asked, you know, what, what, what's, what, what hits you the most? What's the biggest takeaway that you had from seeing all that? And I'll be honest with you, it wasn't, as awesome as it was, it wasn't the Sea of Galilee, it wasn't Golgotha, it wasn't even the empty tomb, as awesome as all of those things are. What we left was with was realizing all that stuff has already happened. It's in the past. What, what really stuck with us is what's still yet to come. And I've got a picture. It's hard to see what's going on here. But we're standing somewhere on the Mount of Olives in this picture. Looking across the Kidron Valley. And that rocky hump there in the middle, that's the eastern gate of Jerusalem. And for me, the biggest takeaway was this story is far from being over. Zechariah tells us that when, the, when Christ comes back, he's going to come to the Mount of Olives. And it's going to be such a mighty moment that the Mount of Olives splits in two. <laughs> and many believe that when he comes back, he's going to go across the Kidron Valley and go right through the eastern gate into the city. Many believe it so much that 500 years ago, the Muslims had it concreted up and sealed shut because they were afraid that he's going to come back and kick them out of there. The Jews in recent history wouldn't allow it to be open because they said when Messiah does come, he's got to go through and he's the one that's going to open the gate and go through himself. And just like in the story of Joseph, I think Christ is going to come and stand before his brothers, his own people that once rejected him and disowned him and left him for dead. And just like Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, I think Christ is going to reveal himself to the Jewish people. And as the Bible says, there's going to be a great deliverance. And I don't know about you, but I get excited about that. <laughs> We pray for those Jews that need to recognize him as, as Messiah. But for us today, we've got to ask the question, what about us? What about we Gentiles over here on the other side of the world? Do you need the peace of God in your life by letting some things go, by letting go of some past hurts, Peace of God that comes through the forgiveness of God because of what Christ has done for you? If you don't have it, you've got to ask the hard question, am I ready if he comes back? Because I'll tell you, it's a whole lot sooner than it is later when the king comes back. So stand together. I want to pray for you. It's a lot to think about this morning as we reflect on not only what Christ has done, the fact that God is in control, the fact that God is so sovereign that He wants to save you and have a relationship with you. And that He allowed His Son to go through all of that stuff, even death, so that you could be saved. And then we begin to think, well, wait a minute, 
not only that, but he's coming back. And it may very well be in our lifetime that Christ steps through that eastern sky. And we're getting ready to celebrate communion. And Paul encourages us before we do that to examine our hearts. And just ask yourself, you know, what, what, what is between me and God today? Is there something that's preventing me from having that peace with God? Whatever it is, you can forget about it. You can let it go. You can be delivered from it, as the Bible says. You can leave here with a relationship with Christ, with peace in your heart. Mr. Shepherd showed us last week just how easy that was. Just to take that step of faith and say yes to Jesus. Maybe God's dealing with you and you realize, you know what? This body of believers is where I need to be plugged in and I need to be a part of Rock House Baptist Church where I can grow and go and be fed. However God's dealing with you this morning, I encourage you to come. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you, Lord. Thank you for bringing us here today. God, I know that you're at work in, in many hearts this morning. Lord, we are so sorry for what we have put you through. In this story, Lord, we are one of the brothers that's betrayed you, that sent you to the pit. We thank you, Lord, that God sent Jesus ahead of us to save us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That we could have a relationship with you. That we could have peace with God. That we could, in turn, forgive others that have done us wrong. And God, this morning, if, if you're calling somebody, Lord, to make some decision, God, I pray they'd just give in. That they wouldn't fight it anymore. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in today. And remember, the greatest decision that you could ever make is to place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and begin a personal relationship with Him. Again, thanks for listening. God bless.